What do you say this whole Christianity thing is about? I remember one friend that I grew up with. Uh, he went to church with me. He tagged along. At that point in time, um, both of us were not Christians. Uh, but he went to church because that's where you go to find a good Christian gal, he thought. Still others have come through giving Christianity a try in effort to get things that they want for their own lives, whether it be better jobs, higher salaries, the family that they always wanted, as if Jesus is their own personal genie in the bottle, so to speak. What is this whole Christianity thing about? Why is it that Christians on Easter Sunday and every other Sunday gather together to do this thing? We gather together to be reminded of the good news and great news that salvation is found in Christ alone. Today, I don't know why you might have come. Maybe you just wanted to be polite to the family member that invited you. Maybe you have some sort of pressure. You're feeling life pressure and you're just looking for some sort of answer. Right, and you're just thinking, well, coming to church maybe will just help out in some kind of way. Well, whatever the reason, I'm definitely glad that you're here because we get to be reminded of this news, the greatest news, that salvation can be found in Jesus Christ. And that news is a game changer for Christians. And it ought to be, frankly, a game changer for everyone, and hopefully later on we'll get to why that is the case. It is not a game changer because God has arrived in his son, his eternal son, granting us the wishes that we want to gain, let's say, earthly prosperity and health or that girl or that guy that you've been eyeing or that new job that you may desperately want. The news is that you can know your maker and that salvation is found in Christ alone. Christianity is all about that news which is why we Christians gather together, and in fact, every single other Sunday, to think about this from God's word. And it's why we we speak about this gospel even when we're outside of the church. And we see that Christianity is all about Christ and his gospel from our pastors today. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, it can be found on page 950 if you're using one of those black Bibles right there in front of you. Romans chapter 16, 17 to 27. Now, this passage, as you're turning there, this passage is not some sort of special Easter passage that I chose in effort you know, to, to think about Christ and the gospel on Easter. This is simply the last passage of the book that we're studying through. And we've arrived to the very last passage. That is Romans chapter 16. This was a, is a letter written by Paul the Apostle who was used of God to lay the foundation of the church Right? The foundation is laid through the preaching of the gospel, through the apostles and the early disciples. And he wrote to the Roman Christians there in the mid to late 50s AD, wanting to partner with them as he was taking the gospel to a place that Christ had not been named, namely that he was taking the gospel to Spain, as we see in Romans chapter 15. And naturally, as he's seeking partnership, he's going to talk about what they partner in. What is the true gospel? And so if you were to just go home and read Romans chapters, let's just say 1 to 11, or really, you know, 1 to 8, if you only have like time to read 8 chapters, you're going to see there why the gospel is the good news of Jesus. And that's what they are partnering in. There's no surprise that Christ is the center of Christianity. 
because it is in him that we hear and come to know this marvelous good news. I'll go ahead and read Romans chapter 16, verses 17 to 27 right now, and then we'll walk through it later on. Closing up his letter, this is what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And you see there, he's closing it up. You look there in verse 16, he's commending all of these different people. You look there at Romans 16, 21 to 23, he's saying, look, these people that I am with, most likely he was in Corinth, right? These people, they send their greetings. So Paul here is most likely dictating this letter to this man named Tertius, who's writing down Paul's words. And then we think that Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, is the one who takes it to the Roman Christians there to deliver this wonderful letter written by the Apostle Paul. Well, let's just go ahead and jump into point number one as we think more clearly about the fact that Christianity is all about the good news of Jesus Christ. That is actually just point number one. If you're taking notes, Christianity is all about the good news of Jesus Christ. We see this by way of implication, by way of implication in our first section here. Christianity is all about the good news of Jesus Christ. And we, as we read and studied earlier in the book of Romans, right? We know from Romans chapter one, actually, why don't we just go ahead and turn there. We see these theme verses of this marvelous letter there. Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17. All right, we're still thinking about Christianity. It's all about Jesus Christ and the gospel. He says there, for I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Basically, it just means the whole entire world. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God's saving righteousness that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ, right, that is the content of the gospel, has been revealed to us. His letter is all about the gospel. Christianity is all about the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. And what is implied from our passage today, if you look there in 17 to 20 of chapter 16, is that Christians are to protect and guard this very gospel because it is the power of salvation. Not riches, not money, not living a well-adjusted life, not having well-behaved children. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and that's what we are to uh, be on guard and protect. It says there, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out 
for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. He even goes so far as to say, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by their smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience, he's contrasting their disobedience. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He says it's very clear, right? He wants them to watch out for these folks and even there avoid them. Paul, it seems like he's anticipating that some false teachers are going to be trying to mess with the church and cause divisions. This doesn't seem to be like an issue that's coming up in the church. Earlier, we read about some folks who are, are divided over certain issues of conscience. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about people, look there, uh, who they create obstacles contrary to the gospel. That is the doctrine that they have been taught. And, of course, the doctrine that Paul has just uh, taken so much time to remind them of. It's likely that these folks were claiming to follow Christ, but in actuality, verse 18, they do not serve our Lord Christ. So, right, some folks think, naturally so, that Paul has to clarify that these people don't follow Christ because they actually claim to follow Christ. Does that make sense? But instead, it's really clear they serve their own appetites, verse 18, their own bellies, some of your translations might read. And they do so, verse 17, by causing divisions. This is dividing people, dividing the church even, which interestingly enough, those who cause divisions among people are of the flesh, Galatians says. This, div this divisive attitude is, is carnal. It's sinful. And not only that, though, but they create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that they have been taught. So imagine folks coming in and they're teaching one thing that's not true with the gospel, and then therefore um, those who fall away, so to speak, and show themselves not to be Christians, right? They are, they're, they're falling, they're stumbling, and they lose their grasp on the doctrine that they have been taught. But it gets worse, right? They don't only please themselves. Verse 18, look there. They deceive the hearts of the naive. It seems like these folks are just given in to the same old sinfulness that we saw in Romans chapter 1. They worship themselves over the Creator, and they give joyous approval, right? The more and more people join their number. So much so that they're happy to prey on others. And, and Paul says there, avoid them. We today, in the 21st century church, need to hear and heed Paul's warning too, don't we? Just as they did, so do we. There certainly are modern day folks who say that they serve Christ, but really they're after their own appetites. They're, they're feeding their own bellies. Perhaps the most popular and the most obvious would be, let's say, the high-profile uh, health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers, associate, particularly associated with the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which actually has its headquarters here in Southern California. Folks associated with this network are Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, these supposed you know, miraculous healers. Right? They come in the name of Jesus Christ, sometimes even using the very words of Christ, but their gospel is actually a false gospel. And they might say, you know, follow Jesus, follow us, and you will be wealthy on earth. And you're going to be healthy. If you just give to our, you know, our foundation or our cause, God is going to bless you 10 times what you give, 100 times what you give. But that is not good news. That is fake news and even false news that might work to, you know, raise people up in a frenzy in the moment. But it's news that actually leaves you not knowing the truth.
the so-called prosperity gospel that they preach. It encourages folks to name it and claim it, to speak their destinies into existence as if they are God. And this stuff is straight up based on paganism. It's based on idol worship. And I'm not bad-mouthing when I say this. I'm not bad-mouthing at all. So you could, we could give you, if you want to, I'll give it to you, a recommendation, a title that, uh, that presents research that shows how the health and wealth gospel is based in non-Christian, basically, idolatry and paganism. That's proven. So I'm not bad-mouthing here. Now, when Paul says that they ought to be avoided, he, too, is not seeking to be mean. Right, This is kind of strong language, watch out for them or mark them out. And then he goes on even stronger and he says, avoid them. I mean, what he's doing, what we need to see here, if you're visiting with us, what you need to see here is that he, all he's doing is just protecting the person of Jesus Christ, his character and his reputation. He's protecting Christ's character and his reputation. The false teachers that Christ did, in fact, say would come into the church. The false teachers, whether Paul, whether the ones that Paul is referring to, or the modern-day false teachers, right? They are distorting who the real Jesus is. Thinking about the prosperity preachers, right? He's not the son of God who took on flesh, lived a righteous life, died, and then rose again on the third day in order to make us rich on earth. I mean, if you think about how disciples are to look like the discipler, right? The one that they follow. Just think about Jesus just for one moment. If you think about it, right? That would make no sense because our Christ was actually a lowly servant here on earth. From the womb to the tomb, as some people say. He had no stature in the eyes of men, as we read earlier from the Old Testament. And this was even reflected in the animal that he chose to ride into Jerusalem to be crucified. Right? He didn't hold back that he was the king, right? The authorities are asking him, are you the king? And he says, yes, I am. My kingdom, though, is not of this world. Right? And then as he's moving towards his throne, so to speak, he's, he doesn't come in on a stallion fit for a king of war. He comes in riding a, a beast of burden, a donkey, suitable for mere servants. And as Christ rode into Jerusalem on this donkey, he did not, he did not go and claim an earthly king's throne. Instead, he was raised up on a cross and died a criminal's death. And so the carpenter from a small town who had no earthly riches and had no status, did not come to give us earthly status. But we know why he came, right? Jesus came to bring us back to our maker. He came to save us from our sin and the judgment that we rightly deserve because we were the ones who had rebelled against our loving and holy creator. That is why he came. And that, in fact, is why he was raised. That's why we think about this on Easter Sunday and every other Sunday. And we know what had happened, right? This is what the book of Romans lays out for us. God had created us to be in a perfect relationship with him. Just as every, you know, earthly father so desires of their children. Well, God created us to be in a perfect relationship with him where there was no sin, just perfect love. At least on his part towards man. The problem, though, is that we flexed our, our autonomy. We wanted to be so free from our maker that we rebelled against God. He drew near to us, and we effectively said, buzz off, we don't really care. And if you have been, if you've ever, ever rebelled against your parents, well, you know exactly what this is like. God, the loving Father, draws near to his children, and the children only speak curses at him, so to speak. They tell him to buzz off, to get lost. And so we earn for ourselves judgment. 
We understand this in today's, in today's world ruler, so to speak, right? If there is only one rightful ruler and we go up and set up our own throne, well, we are actually setting up our throne against the one and only true ruler. And the penalty of that is treason. We all understand this here in, in an earthly sense. I don't, it's, it's difficult, and I know from experience, that sometimes we fail to understand this in a spiritual sense towards God, our maker. But friends, where we created the problem, Christ, or God himself, provides the solution in Jesus. Where we deserved his judgment and punishment for having sinned against him. Well, friends, Christ comes to live a perfect life that we should have, and he dies the death that we deserved. Christ is our solution. And so he dies on the cross, again, as we read earlier, bearing the wrath that we deserved. On him was our iniquities. He was pierced for our, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And he received the punishment of us all. Three days later, he rises from the dead. Why does he rise from the dead? Well, not only did he say he was going to do that, but to prove to all that payment has been made. God's wrath has been taken away, has been satisfied. And so now all who repent of their sins and believe on him will, in fact, be saved. And they will know the peace of God, as we sung about. That's what Romans talks about. We know the love of God poured out in our hearts because, wow, the Father has so sent his eternal Son to save us from our sins. And so for you, friend, if you are visiting and know yourself not to be a Christian, let me encourage you. You can know this salvation, this peace, and the very love of God if you would turn from your sins and believe on him. And you too will know the love of God poured out in your heart for a sinner such as yourself or us all. Thinking back to the prosperity preachers, if Jesus is only the spiritual lottery ticket, the heavenly ATM machine, it's harder, a whole lot harder for people to see Christ for who he really is, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All he will ever be is a golden ticket to health and wealth. And even that, okay, so even that, he'll just end up being one among the many avenues to your own health and wealth, right? If that's all that Jesus is. I mean, you know, you know what I mean when I say that? There are a lot of ways to get rich today, for sure. And if one follows Jesus in order to get rich, well, friends, you don't worship Christ, you worship riches. Christ is just your means to the end of your glorification, your self-actualization, your riches, living the way that you want, your destiny. Preaching the prosperity gospel, Jesus becomes a path, just one path to living for yourself. Where you are God. Jesus is your genie. The problem is, friends, that that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is not one path to living for yourself as if you are God. Jesus himself is God, the one through whom all things were made, Scripture says. The one for whom all things were made. And so he deserves all of the glory. So when it comes to Jesus being the genie, the heavenly ATM, the water boy, however one might think of him, you know, we don't think that way about significant others, right? I mean, do we think about, you know, our spouses, our significant others, our loved ones, our children as a means to our own end, self-actualization or our destinies? If we don't do it with our loved ones, why would we do that with Jesus? Who wants to be the means to the ends of someone else's selfish self-glorification? I mean, any wives out here want your husbands to say, hey, look, I'm just going to do me, and if you work out for me, great. 
And if not, you know, I'll find a new you. And I'm just going to give you a try right now. Like, who wants to, 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 to be thought of it that way? Why in the world would we want to think of Jesus that way? If, generally speaking, right, we do not do that with other people, right? We're using others, oftentimes in our selfish sinfulness, to use others to fulfill our destiny, so to speak. Why would we do that with Jesus Christ, the real person who came, who lived, who died, and who rose from the dead? Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, the Lord. So when Paul calls Christians to watch out and avoid these people, he's just protecting the person of Jesus Christ and the good news that is found in him, that salvation can be found in him and in him alone, all by his grace through faith. Now, okay, some of you here, maybe you're reading this for the very first time, you might think, okay, so he's not being mean-spirited. But man, he's sure being narrow-minded. He's sure being narrow-minded, telling us to watch out for these folks and avoid them. And to that, I would just simply say, yes, he is being narrow-minded, if that's how you're going to define being narrow-minded. I mean, if someone, just stop for a moment, if someone were to spread lies about a husband's loving wife, right? Let's say somebody wants to spread lies about uh, Melanie, who I think is wonderful and very loving and sacrificial, you know, I could go on and on. Let's say someone wants to spread lies about my wife to my own children. They say, oh, you know why she bore you for nine months? and gave birth to you C-sections four times, and is now raising us because she just wants a tax credit. That's <laughs> All she wants is that tax credit to spend it on her, her own clothing, and her adulterous affairs, you know, such garbage and lies. What would, a, what would we all expect a loving husband to do? Would we not appreciate the narrow-minded husband who doesn't tolerate any of those lies? What would we think of the husband that did? that didn't defend the truth about who his wife was and all that she had done in service to God and her family, all the great things by God's grace to his praise that she had done in her life. To not defend would be disrespect. It would not be loving at all. I want to protect my wife and a reputation among our children and among and in the world. I want to protect how my children hear about their, their loving mother, her love and self-sacrifice, right? I'm, all, I, I'm guessing that we would all appreciate the husband who refused to let his loving wife be demeaned in such a fashion. Friends, so we can appreciate what Paul's doing here. He's simply protecting the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. He has lived, real person. He has died in real history. And he got out from the dead in real history. And the Bible even says, believe it or not, that he's going to come again to establish his rule and reign. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, I wonder, you know, this might sound odd. In fact, even when I say it, at times, it sounds odd. But then in my own moments in the past when I have wrestled with, man, this sounds really strange. Like, is this for real? Is this real? Like, a dead guy got up from the dead? Like, you realize that Christianity is not just blind faith. I mean, that's kind of a, a really, frankly, a silly notion that Christianity is based on blind faith. It's not based on blind faith. It's based on a Jesus of history. You can go back and read non-Christians and Christians writing about the same Jesus. You can read about non-Christians who say, yes, it is common knowledge that, that Christ's disciples wrote about this Jesus who got up from the dead, even. And they're not refuting it. They're just saying, this is what they say. And there's no refutation of it. So I hope that here you're being invited to actually think about, to, you know, okay, clearly it says it in the Bible that he rose from the dead. 
It even talks about how, you know, I was reading with the kids this morning. It talked about how the rulers wanted to circulate a lie because I had no answer for the empty tomb. They even said, okay, let's pay the soldiers money and you go spread the lie that his disciples came and stole Jesus's body from the tomb. Like that'll be a good explanation as opposed to he actually meant what he said and did what he said. Um, so you could read it in the Bible. If you want to read extra biblical things, you can and you can study it. But friend, I hope you're being invited here to study the word and come up with your own verdict for the empty tomb. Right, there are lawyers here, so think you can think lawyerly here. What's the evidence say? What could, what could all the possibilities be for why this dead man got out from the grave and now all of these people, let's take the early disciples, have died for the faith or been exiled or suffered for the faith? I mean, would they suffer for a lie? I mean, they're spreading this lie in Jerusalem, which is where all everybody knows what happened. Not only that, though, like who would go on and knowingly suffer for a lie? I mean, there's just so much, there's so much evidence. And some people even think, oh, Jesus, actually, he actually didn't die. He just kind of fainted, and then he sort of revived in the tomb. And then while he has holes in his hands and in his wrists and his feet, he gets up, and he's like pushing the stone away, like, no problem. He's like, it's like a cotton ball. Like, how do you do that? So you got to come up, right? You got to wrestle with the facts. Like, what's our verdict on the empty tomb? Not only that, though, but, you know, okay, so if you're, you're saying, well, I recognize, Jeremy, that the Bible says that Jesus got up from the dead. But really, the question is, I don't know if I trust the Bible. That's actually a really good question. Just like the question of, did Jesus actually get up from the dead? That, too, is a really good question. So I hope, friends, you're actually able to, to think about, think well about, well, how, why should I trust the Scriptures? Because if they are merely written by man, which is what a lot of, you know, what academia says. You know, people, they want to express themselves and they're always looking for something in the midst of their, their struggles and so they create this idea of God. And that's just what the Israelites did in the Old Testament. That's what Christians do in the New Testament. If that's all that it is, right? If Christ really didn't get up from the dead, Paul says we are the biggest fools of all, that we are the most of all men to be pitied. Because if the resurrection is not true, then who cares about what the Bible says? Right? It, it would nullify all of Jesus' claims. We recognize right, in, in human history, there have been a number of people who have come and claimed to be God. Right? They make a claim, I am God, and they die, and they lay, in the, they lay in the grave. Jesus, though, is so entirely different. Jesus comes along, says that he is God. Right? He makes that claim. He makes another claim, I'm going to get up from the dead. And what does he do? He gets up from the dead. So you see there how special this Jesus is. He's not just any man who claims one thing. He's the God-man. And since he has gotten up from the dead, it proves everything that he's already said. He proves himself to be God to the skeptical, which many of us know exactly what that's like, to be skeptical. So friends, I hope that you are invited to investigate Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. This is Christianity is not based on blind faith. It's a belief in Christ who actually lived, died, and was raised in history. If you want to learn more about this Christ or anything that I've just mentioned, you can talk to me briefly uh, at the door there, and uh, we can point you to different resources, and maybe one of us from the church can meet up with you and study the Bible in an ongoing fashion. So I encourage you, before you reject Christianity, let me encourage you, for the sake of intellectual integrity, to investigate it fully. Just throw yourself into it, just as I'm sure many of us have done with other different uh, claims and world religions again we christians follow a real christ who lived died and rose again and he did this in order that sinners would be saved from their sin that they would know without a shadow of doubt forgiveness of sin not through their own works but through jesus's work 
He came to do this so that we would know right standing with him, that we would be justified even though we had rebelled against him. He did this so that we would know freedom from the power of sin and that we would know the love of God. This is why Christians are charged to preach the good news of salvation in Christ alone. To protect Christ in the gospel is to be faithful to him. It is to be obedient to him. That's why it says there in verse 19, Paul praises, rejoices over their obedience. It's because they are remaining steadfast. Well, Christians, in effort to be faithful to Jesus Christ here at this church, we seek to preach that gospel. We seek to remain faithful and obedient. This is a huge part of what it looks like to be faithful to Christ. We want Christ. In fact, we need Christ to be our vision. We want to esteem him rightly and to think well about what he has done for us in salvation. And we want to present Christ clearly, whether we are preaching from Genesis to Revelation. Thinking back to the false teachers who did not hold out the gospel. You know what's sobering? It doesn't require false teachers to cloud the gospel among Christians. Sometimes Christians and churches lose sight of the gospel on their own. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, he noted a pattern that oftentimes that shows itself in the church is that the first generation believes the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel, and then the third generation loses the gospel. Why is that so? The reason this is the case is that the first generation oftentimes, not always, the first generation oftentimes, right, they believe the gospel But when they don't keep it front and center in their life as a church, right? Let's say they're preaching why you shouldn't gossip or 10 ways to have a healthy marriage or 15 ways to better parenting, which, you know, are still important. But when they preach only those things, the second generation that comes up underneath them, well, they end up thinking that the most important thing is about uh, about Christianity and Christ is having better marriages and better parenting and not gossiping, right? Because that's what's being preached. And if that's all that church is about, Why in the world is the third generation going to stick around? You can get that kind of stuff in self-help books. You you don't get Jesus in self-help books. And so the gospel is lost. Well, friends, we pray that this church would be all about Christ and his gospel. We recognize that God's word is all about what God is doing in Christ from start to finish. God's word is all about God fulfilling his promises in Jesus such that he gets the glory We see this in the beginning of the book of Genesis there. After the fall of man, sin enters into the world through Adam and Eve in their rebellion. And despite the judgment and darkness, God nevertheless, in love, draws near to his people and offers hope. Not hope in what what Adam and Eve would do, but hope in in what what God would do through Christ, the God-man. And in many ways, everything after Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, everything after the promise that one from the the line of the woman would destroy sin, Satan, and death, everything after that is the simple unfolding of God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ's chosen one. The one who can do what no man can do for himself because he is the God-man come to defeat sin, death, and Satan. It's because of Christ's death and resurrection that Paul can say to the Roman church and say with great confidence as he looks forward to final judgment, the judgment of Satan, he says there, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so at that day, God throws away the key to the prison that Satan is locked in. 
and Satan will once and for all be destroyed, and those who are Christ will no longer be deceived, no longer be divided, no longer be distracted by those who seek to draw them away. Well, friends, of course, this day is not yet. Not yet. Until that day, we as Christ's church are to live our lives in the spirit being an embassy of the heavenly kingdom here in this world. Right? You can think about Christian living that Paul has helped us think about in Romans chapters 12, 13, 14, 15. And so every single local church is to represent the king and his wonderful, loving rule. We're supposed to preach the good news to the ends of the earth. Friends, this is not easy. This requires persistence, diligence, and faith in God's promises. We know that persecution was going on. We know that this community of Christians in Rome, many of them were exiled for years. We know that there is suffering, as we read about it in Romans chapter 8. But thank God that he gives us faith and faithfulness to this call. Thank God that in Christ there is hope. And one day all glory will be his. This brings us to point number two, certainly shorter than point number one. Point number two, to God be the glory in the gospel. To God be the glory in the gospel. Writing his final paragraph of the letter, Paul says there, he prays there in verses 25 to 27. You go ahead and look there. We see the thrust there. Start in verse uh, 25. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you. He He knows what's coming. Paul himself would go on and face more persecution in his faith. But he says, now to him who is able to strengthen you. And then skip down to 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. But thank God that that in God there is strength for the mission he calls us to. And he knows exactly what he's doing. Based on these verses, we see here how strength is offered for life and mission. I'll go ahead and read the entire thing. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ Jesus, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. In verses 25 and 26, did you notice there how strengthening comes to Christians? Three things, each beginning with according to. And with every single according to, right, with every single explanation, it's almost as if our lives, our Christian lives and ministry are, are weighted down in a good way, right? Where our lives are oftentimes tumultuous. But with every according to, every reason, we are weighted down with the idea of making us immovable in our love and service to God. First, he says, first, he says, Christians are strengthened by my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. We should understand that to be one phrase pointing us to the content of the gospel, the content of the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul was called to, cre- to preach, right? That's why he says, my gospel. He's not saying that he made it up or his is somehow different than all the other apostles. My gospel just simply means the gospel that Christ charged me to preach. So friends, as we continue in our life and mission, as we think about sometimes, you know, our own struggles and spiritual laziness in your own fear of man, when we are oftentimes tempted to be quiet about the gospel, or even in our temptation to be embarrassed about the gospel. Here we're offered strength. Here we are to consider that these truths of Jesus, you know, that's, uh, let's be honest, sometimes we might 
we might be a little shy about them, depending on who we're talking to. But we're reminded, look, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest news that man can ever share. That salvation is found in him and in him alone, all by his grace, not through works, but by faith in his work. In Christ Church, we, Christ Church, we are built on this very gospel, the foundation of this gospel. And so we are to be strengthened in it. The wonderful truths that Christ came to save and that the king now is doling out pardons for all who recognize his rule and reign. Second thing, we can find strength knowing that it's been God's plan to save sinners throughout history. It's been God's plan to save sinners in Jesus Christ throughout history. This should embolden the Christian even more. You know, sometimes we might have news that we might want to talk about to our friends and family, but, you know, for whatever reason, in the moment, we think, eh, it's not really worth bringing up. It's not all that important. Not for God. Every moment of human history, it has been on God's mind to save sinners through Jesus Christ. It's been his plan throughout the ages. This is the point in 25 and 26 when he talks there about the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings. The mystery is what God was doing in Christ. Something previously concealed but now revealed. That's the definition of biblical mystery. And in this case, the mystery is that salvation has been opened wide to everybody in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he has made it known to all nations, our passage says. It's in the arrival of Jesus Christ that brings such clarity that we all, anybody, Jew or not, can look back at the Old Testament and know that those secret things or the things that were hinted at have now been disclosed in full. The reference there to the secret things being made known to all nations there, that's a reference to Abraham and God's promises to him that one from his line would be a blessing to the whole entire world. And that one from Abraham's line is Christ, Paul says in the book of Galatians. The arrival of Christ was according to God's perfect timing. So Christ began to gather his church in one body so that they would display his glory to the watching world so that people would believe, and then they would go on preaching, and then they would go out living in the implications of the gospel. It was time for Paul. That's why Paul wanted to dart all the way to the ends of the earth. In this case, he was going to Spain, taking the gospel to a place where Christ had not been named. And it's always time for us, Christians, as we are to remain faithful until the return of Christ, faithful in making disciples of all nations. The third thing we find for strength in life and mission The third thing is knowing that our mission, the command, comes from our unchanging and eternal God. Did you see there it is according to the command of the eternal God? Friends, this wonderful truth roots what we are doing now in God who is eternal, who endures throughout the ages, who in fact began the ages. This provides great security and endurance Sure, some of these Christians were enduring hardship. We know that persecution would, in fact, get worse. And while we may not go through the exact same things as they did, we do experience various challenges in the Christian life. And in the moment, right, some of you guys are in the moment. This is challenging even right now. But who gives us strength for this earthly mission? It is our eternal God. All of this is because of our eternal God. The plan to save sinners is of God. Our salvation by God's grace through faith faith alone in Christ is of God. Actual salvation is accomplished through the Son of God. The command to make disciples of all nations was given to us by God himself. 
And who is it that gives strength to the church for our earthly mission? It is our eternal God. And with this doxology, he closes the letter with the very things he began with. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. Here, this, this right here is an excellent summary of what Paul lived for. You see there, I'll go ahead and read verses 1 to 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, he lives his whole life in service to Jesus. He's called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And what is this gospel? Well, friends, it says there it's concerning his son, who was certainly a man, He was descended from David according to the flesh, but he was also God, the God-man, and he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who rules, the one who reigns, the King, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ. So Paul concludes in Romans chapter 16 with the things that he began with, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. Sometimes in our life together as a church, we tire for whatever reason. In the face of life issues, personal issues, sin issues, persecution issues. But when we consider that we are stewards of the very mysteries of God, previously concealed but now revealed in Jesus Christ, that God himself is building up his church and empowering us for life and mission, we know that there is hope in him. We are strengthened. We are able to be compelled to live a life for him in the gospel. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, indeed, we thank you for the great and marvelous news of Jesus Christ coming to the world to save sinners, just as your word speaks about. Uh, Lord, we recognize that sometimes this message is hard to hear because we live by sight and not by faith. Lord, we live for the temporary, but not the things eternal. Lord, we trust in ourselves and not in your revealed word. We trust in our own intellect as opposed to your wisdom. We trust in our own strength as opposed to strength that is found in Christ. Lord, there's so many different reasons why sometimes hearing these things can be difficult. But we thank you, Lord, for the revelation of your righteousness in Jesus Christ and his gospel. We thank you that in it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe for all who throw themselves at your feet and recognize that you are the only ruler and king. We thank you, God, that you are not a tyrant, but that you are loving. And so we recognize that in Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh to sort of stop humanity in our tracks and to call us to reorient ourselves to you, we thank you that in Christ Jesus, your love has been displayed. Lord, we ask that you would soften our hearts to believe it. Lord, we pray that you would, you, you would help us apply our very minds 
and our hearts to your things. Lord, help us investigate if we don't know you. Lord, we pray that we would actually investigate these things, knowing that you came in history. You lived and died and rose again. And Lord, we ask that you would be softening hearts even right now and be revealing your gospel to many. In your name we pray, amen.